This is my right A right given by God To live a free life To live in freedom Talking about All right, well, we are in the middle of this series on freedom. Who wants some freedom? I do. I want freedom. We need freedom. And so I have a lot to cover today, so I'm not going to introduce and recap all that we've done in the past two weeks. I'm just going to jump right in, and hopefully we'll get to that recap. So if you have a Bible, you want to open it to Galatians chapter 2. We're going on to 2, two today. We're going to move from chapter 1 to chapter 2. And let me just begin reading it. I will put it on the screen if you don't have a Bible or an iPhone or an iPad or an iOS or an Android or a robot. You can just look at the screen. Here it is. Galatians 2, verse 1 and 2. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. So Paul goes up to Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus. Paul, Barnabas, Titus. And I went up because of a revelation. So God came down or Jesus spoke or an angel spoke and and. I set before them, that's the apostles, Peter, James, and John, though privately before those others who seemed influential, the gospel that I've proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Okay, and so this verse is, is really a, re, a continuation of Paul's original argument in chapter 1. And Paul's argument in this entire book is that the gospel is grace alone in Christ alone. Through faith alone, no works. It's not Jesus plus circumcision, Jesus plus the Jewish law, Jesus plus don't eat pulled pork sandwiches, none of that. It's just Jesus. And Paul's fighting for freedom. He's fighting for the freedom that we have in in the gospel. And in the first chapter, he says, this gospel that I've been preaching came to me from Jesus. I didn't get it from a man. I didn't get it from an apostle. I I didn't go to Jerusalem when I got saved and be mentored by Peter. No, I went to Arabia and got mentored by Jesus. He said, I spent my life being mentored by Jesus. And so the message I'm preaching came from Jesus. So I am confident that it is grace alone. And he's so confident I'm going to fight against anyone who wants to get in the way of our freedom. Freedom from the tyranny of religion and even freedom, as we covered last week, from the need or the disease to please, always wanting to please people. Paul says, I don't care about you. I only care about the gospel. Even last week, we learned that we are free from the disease to please God because God is pleased in his son, not in us anyway. And he is pleased in us when we are in Christ. And so it's a, a beautiful thing. And you can see in this tone, he's still that same argument. However, even though I didn't get the gospel from these men, even though Jesus gave me the gospel, I still went and talked to those men. But not for 14 years. Did you see that? 14 years later, I... I've been preaching the gospel all around the earth for 14 years, and then I went up to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles, to show them all that I've been preaching to the Gentiles, to see if I had not run in vain. So so the bottom line is that the big idea is Paul saying, here's what I've been preaching. I've been preaching grace alone, meaning I've not been preaching the law. I've not preached the law to the Gentiles. I've not told them they can't eat pulled pork sandwiches. (laughs) 
I've not told them they have to be circumcised. I've just preached the gospel that Jesus came and died for their sins and that they can be saved. And guess what's happened? People have been saved. The Gentiles, the Greeks, they heard the gospel. They, they responded to the gospel and their lives got turned upside down. Jesus has been moving in their lives. The Holy Spirit has been baptizing them. That's what's been happening for the past 14 years. All gospel, no law, and we've seen thousands of people get saved. And, and here's some examples, for instance, of Paul's preaching. If we go back in the book of Acts, we see Paul preaching. Here's Acts 13, one of the times that he presented the gospel. He said, let it be known to you, brothers and sisters, therefore, brothers, that through this man, that would be Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is free, free from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. That's not Galatians, by the way. That's Corinthians. Wait, Acts. That's a book of Acts. Paul's always preaching the gospel of freedom. And he said, a freedom that you get not from the law, a freedom that you get apart from the law, from him, from Jesus. So Paul says, this is the way I've been preaching, always. And we've been, it's been working. And then he says something kind of interesting to me. He says, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Did you catch that? Now, the reason why I say it's curious or interesting is because, well, there's a lot of different ways you could trans or interpret that, right? Um, different ways you could say that. It sounds like, and this is one way to interpret it, and I don't think this is the right way. It sounds like he's saying, I went to Jerusalem to consult with the apostles to see if the gospel that I had been preaching was right. Doesn't it kind of sound like that? To see if I had run in vain, if I had been preaching the wrong gospel. But I don't think that's what it means. Because if it does, then you can just erase chapter 1. <laughs> because all of chapter 1, he says, Jesus gave me this gospel. I am confident that this gospel is right because Jesus gave me this gospel. And why would he say, but I just was getting you know, insecure and thought I would check with the disciples to make sure I was saying the right thing. I don't think that's what he's saying at all. I think instead of what he's saying is this. I preach the gospel to the Galatians, the gospel of freedom. I set them free from the bondage of religion. And then I left to go plant other churches. And then these other brothers, these other Christians, snuck into the church and started teaching them that they had to do this and don't do this and don't do that and do this and, and try harder and be better and be better. And then, and then if they were to enslave them from the very thing that Jesus freed them from, then I would have been running my race in vain. Isn't that true? Not only would Paul be running his race in vain, but Christ would have died in vain. <laughs> That's what he's going to say later. So what do you think is going to happen? Paul met with the apostles, Peter, James, John, said, I've been preaching grace alone. Holy Spirit's been showing up. What saith thou you? How do you think Peter's going to respond? How do you think James is going to respond? James, <laughs> if you've ever read the book of James, <laughs> how do you think James is going to respond? Is he going to say, well, but you've got to, you know, get circumcised, or you've got to Stop eating bacon, or you've got to, you know, obey the, don't forget the law. You're, missing, you're, you're teaching them easy believism out there, Paul. You think that's what they're going to say? You do, don't you? Well, let's see, you know, you're not participating tonight, is that? Okay. All right. Let's see, let's see what he says. Let's see what happens. Galatians 2, verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised though he was a Greek. So that's what happened. They, they hashed it out, they argued it out, and in the end, Titus was not forced <laughs> to be circumcised. I think it's funny the way he uses the word forced. <laughs> because 
only a slave gets forced, right? And it would be slavery for Titus, who's uncircumcised Gentile, to get Jesus and get saved and have the Holy Spirit working in his life and then show up to a bunch of these legalistic religious people who said, yeah, but you've got to get, you know, cut tonight. We're going to force you to get circumcised. You've got to imagine, this is a stressful weekend for Titus, you know? <laughs> right. I could just imagine Titus at home, you know, he's working on a sermon for Sunday, and then Paul shows up with Barnabas and says, hey, Titus, we're going to Jerusalem for a, cro- a conference. We want you to, co- it's a gospel conference. <laughs> we're going to be talking about the gospel. We're going to be talking about what is the reach of the gospel. Is it faith alone, or is it faith plus the law, plus circumcision? And, and we want you to come with us, because you're a Greek, and because you're uncircumcised, <laughs> And because obviously the Holy Spirit's working through you and we want you to be our test subject. We're going to be wrestling as to whether or not we should circumcise Greeks. Can you imagine Titus? <laughs> this has got to go well. This is either going to be a worst day of his life or the best day. And it turned out to be the best day. I mean, not the best day. The best day was when Jesus came into his life. The second best day was when Paul defended him for freedom. Freedom won in the end. And he didn't get snipped. And you and I can have Joy about that, right? It's a good day for him. It's a good day for us. No longer are we enslaved into the tyranny of religion. It's freedom, Christ alone, grace alone. Amen? Amen. You don't have to do this or do that, and you can have pulled pork sandwiches. I'm so happy about this. Okay, keep going before I get hungry. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us back into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. He kind of gives us a little hint again as to why he went down there in the first place, not to see if he was preaching the right gospel, but so that he could preserve the gospel for you so that you wouldn't get sucked into the same slavery. And I like I really like this passage, don't you? He says, there were some men who snuck in to spy out our freedom that we had in Christ Jesus. Can I just tell you that that will happen to you? If it hasn't already. There will be people who will come into your life and they will spy out the freedom that you have in Christ Jesus. And they'll say, we don't like this freedom that you have. You're too cool. You're too happy. You're too confident. You're too free. You need to be miserable. You need to try harder. You need to get up at six and do your Bible study. You can't have tattoos. You can't eat bacon. You know that people will do that to you? Raise your hand if you've ever had someone sneak in and spy out your freedom. And they try to enslave you back into religion. This checklist of to-do list that you have to try harder. You hang out with them and they make you feel small. They make you feel like you need to memorize more Bible. They make you feel like you need to get up earlier and pray longer spying out your freedom. Paul says, we did not submit even for a moment. Right now, I want to say this. Please hear me. You are free. Free indeed. And don't you ever let anyone suck you into religion, suck you into slavery, because it will destroy your faith. Won't it? Won't it? As soon as you start trying to try harder and do better, don't you just mess up more? And as soon as someone makes you feel small, doesn't it make you want to pray less? Don't you ever, not for a moment, let anyone spy out your freedom and snuff it out of you. Paul says, we fought for freedom to preserve it for you. And I'm saying, we need to fight for freedom today. One scholar said, the gospel is always attacked from the inside, not from the outside. 
Non-Christians don't say, well, we don't like that gospel stuff, that, you know, Jesus paid it all stuff. <laughs> it's only people inside the church that says, well, no, you're going too far there. You need to try harder and do better. Don't you ever let anyone snuff out your freedom because Jesus Christ came to set you free. Galatians 5, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Come on, someone give me an amen or a what water or a honey bunch of oats or something. Come on. All right, well, let's move on. Galatians chapter 2, verse 6. And from these who seem to be influential, I like the way he talks here, these people who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. What he's basically saying here is I talked to these people who seemed as if they knew it all, seemed as if they had it all figured out, and what I learned was they didn't add anything to what I already knew. They didn't add anything to what I already knew, which is that it's grace alone, Christ alone, faith alone. It's Jesus, no plus sign. And so these guys didn't add a plus sign to my Jesus. I, I, I studied, I listened, I heard them out. No plus, it's just Jesus. And then he says, I say, seemed blah, blah, blah. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that's to the Gentiles, the Greeks, the Jews, I mean the non-Jews, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, that's the Jews. And then it goes on, verse six through nine. And when James and Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, and James and Peter and John are pillars, are they not? <laughs> pillars of the faith. Perceived that grace, that the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they should go to the circumcised. I want to spend the rest of the, of the evening on, on that. I love this. I am passionate about this. They basically said, after we hashed it out at our gospel conference, we thought it was best, thought it was good, that Peter, James, and John, they take the gospel to the Jews, and Barnabas, Paul, and Titus, they take the gospel to the Greeks. Peter, James, and John, they make the gospel relevant to Jewish people. Barnabas, Paul, and Titus, they make the gospel relevant to Greek people, to people who aren't Jewish, to people who are far from God. And this is called contextualization. Can you say that word? What is contextualization? Contextualization means this, adapting the message of the gospel, or really any message or anything, any song, any program, any, you know, whatever. Adapting the message of the gospel to fit in your context. So Peter has to fit the gospel into a Jewish context. Can I just say that's going to be difficult? How do you tell Jewish people that Jesus came to set them free from their old ways? That's hard. Unfortunately, I can sympathize with that in the Christian church. And then Paul is going to have to take the gospel and fit it into a Greek context. People who don't know anything about Yahweh, people who don't know anything about the fact that you're not allowed to eat bacon. You know, they think it's kind of crazy that those Jews don't eat bacon. Don't you think it's crazy that they don't get to eat bacon? Anyone getting hungry tonight? So Paul has to make the gospel relevant to Greeks, and Peter has to make the gospel relevant to Jews. How do you do that? Well, can I just tell you that Paul does it all the time? If you read the Bible, Paul's always doing it. He know, he's a missionary, and he knows how to go into a context and say, this is how I'm going to spin the gospel so that they'll be attracted to it. L let me give you an example. I'm just going to read one example from the Bible, and then we'll talk about it. It's found in Acts chapter 17. If you want to look it up, as you're going there, I'll, I'll set the stage for you. Um, Paul is in Greece. You know, Paul's normally in you know, somewhere else, but Paul goes to Greece. And he's in the capital city of Greece called Athens. I've been there. 
It is beautiful. It is gorgeous. The Parthenon, the Agora, the, the Acropolis. I mean, it's just like you imagine if you've seen pictures. There's thousands of these little white statues everywhere, and, 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 and they're just beautiful. The whole landscape has been preserved almost very well. I mean, you can, it's very easy to imagine what it might have looked like in its original glory because it's so preserved. Sarah, you've been to Athens, haven't you? You've been in the Parthenon. Isn't it beautiful? We were walking through it and you stood there and acted like one of the statues a couple of times, got in trouble for that. So Paul's in Athens, he's walking around and this is what happens. It says, verse chapter 17. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus. Let me just stop right there real quick and, and unpack this word, Areopagus. It's a Greek word. Wouldn't you know it? They're in Greece. It's a Greek word, okay? So the word Areopagus is a Greek word, and the word Pugus, that's my Texas version of Greek, Pugus, Pagus, is the Greek word for big rock, because that's what it is. It's a great big rock. Here's a picture of it here. A giant rock that sits north of Athens, and it just overlooks the whole city. It's way up on top of the city. I've stood on top of this rock. Pagus means rock. Arius is the Greek god of war. And so they named this rock after him because the myth, the Greek myth is that Arius, his, his, his dad is Zeus, got tried and judged right there on that rock for killing Poseidon. If you're into that kind of thing, thought I'd let you know. And so this became, for the, Jew, I mean, for the Greeks at this time, the Areopagus became the council in which they would judge criminals because Arius was judged there, so this is where they're going to judge criminals. So you think about it, Paul's on top of this rock, and he's hanging out with lawyers, judges, philosophers. I mean, these are not the kinds of people that you probably want to go share the gospel with. Am I right? I mean, in intimidating people. But Paul's there. Incidentally, when Rome came in, they renamed this rock after their god of war, and their god of war, his name is Mars. And so this became Mars, do you know? Hill, Mars Hill. So Mars Hill is the Areopagus. So Paul's on Mars Hill, and he says this to them. Standing on Mars Hill, he said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and, and observed the objects of your worship, I found also this altar down the road with this transcription that said, To the unknown God. This is fascinating to me. See, Paul is in Athens, and he's walking around, and he's reading the statues. He's reading the inscriptions, and he's, he's learning about their culture. I imagine him with one of those tourist guides, you know? <laughs> he's walking around, you know, with his camera, and he's looking at pictures of all these statues, and he's reading the inscriptions. Maybe he's gone to the local bookstore, and he's maybe bought a book of one of their local authors. I mean, you should do that. If you go visit, you should read some of their local authors, see some of their local artists. I imagine him in the hotel room there in Athens, and if he's anything like me, he's been flipping, spending a lot of time in that restaurant magazine. You know what I mean? <laughs> You're looking through the, you know, the one on the coffee table at the hotel. You're looking at all the pictures of the euros and the uh, fish, and you just can't wait to go get some feta cheese. You know? I imagine that's what he's doing. And so when he sees all these different scriptures, he's learning about the culture. He knows what they like and what they don't like. He knows what they're into and what they're not into. Here's what you and I would do. If we were in Greece at that time or if we went to Greece tomorrow and those people still worshiped those statues or those altars, you and I, would, we would nod our head, wouldn't we? We'd say, these pathetic people. So sad that they worship statues. I mean, they worship so, there's so many statues that they worship. 
It's so sad that they're so, we'd look down our nose at them and say, they're so ignorant for worshiping statues. They even have one that doesn't even have a name. <laughs> it's just plain ignorant. That's the what, am I right? That's what we would do, not Paul. Paul says, I see that you are religious. All of you are very religious. Because as I walk around, I see a lot of religion. I see a lot of statues. I see, I even saw one to an unnamed God. He's not making them feel stupid. He's not judging them. He's getting on their level. He's, he's on their turf. And he's saying, he's making connections with them. He's contextualizing. Let's, let's move on to see what else he does. Well, since you have this statue of an unnamed God, let me say this. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man, that would be Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places so that they should seek after God and perhaps feel their way towards him and maybe even find God. Good stuff, isn't it? Paul's a pretty good preacher. And Saul's true, right? He's, God made the heavens and the earth. Well, it's kind of true. Not all of it's really true. Did you notice that? Paul basically says, I, I notice that you have this God with no name. I know his name. But that's not true. <laughs> that altar is not for God. <laughs> it's not for Jesus. But Paul is going to run with that. <laughs> and he says, well, listen, you don't know his name. I do. He's the, God of the, he's the creator of the universe. He created all things. And, and you know what? It makes sense that you would say he's unknown because he does seem a bit unknowable, being that he created the universe and he's way up there. It makes sense that you would say he's unnamed because it would make sense because he is kind of unnamed. He is kind of unknowable. And you do feel and sense that you need to grope for him and search for him and feel your way to him. Isn't that true about God? Yeah, so he's, he's right on. He's talking their language. He's right on their level. Do you feel it? He's on my level. <laughs> then he goes on to say, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. You may think he's far, but he's not. In him, we live and move and, and have our being. He sounds kind of like a hippie there, doesn't he? I know some fundamentals to get all excited about that. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Did you see that? Paul's quoting some of their own poets. I told you he went to a bookstore told you he bought a book. I think he did. I think, I imagine him sitting back at the hotel room, maybe watching some of their TV channels, maybe, maybe listening to some of their music. When I was in Greece, I didn't put an iPod in my ear and listen to Dave Matthews. I pulled it out. I tuned the radio to, to Athenian music. I wanted to hear some Athenian hip-hop or country music or whatever, you know? I didn't understand what they were saying, but I wanted to saturate myself in the culture. Paul has saturated himself in the culture, and he can say, you guys are looking for God, and you should be looking for him. But can I tell you, he's not so far away. He's not so far away as you think. Even your own poets think that. Even your own philosophers say, we are his offspring. He's good at this contextualizing thing. So he goes on. Uh, we'll wrap up this sermon. Paul's sermon, that is, not mine. Being then God's offspring... We ought not to think that divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art or the imagination of man. So Paul is basically saying, since you believe that God is, we are God's offspring, we're not statues, so therefore we shouldn't worship statues. <laughs> we're not stone, so we shouldn't worship stone. I mean, we're, we're his offspring, we need to know that he's like us in some ways. The time of ignorance, God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent 
because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man. Who's that man? Thank you, Jesus. But did you notice that Paul doesn't say Jesus? By a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The end. He didn't even say Jesus' name. Now, you, if you guys know me, you know I think we should say Jesus. <laughs> oh, Jesus, right? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. So I'm all into saying Jesus. But you know, you don't always have to. You don't always have to put all your cookies on the bottom shelf. You don't always have to be annoying and start, Jesus! Have you ever seen those people? You know, Jesus! He doesn't even mention Jesus' name. He basically preaches the gospel. And that is called contextualization. Did you see it? He made the gospel relevant to people who are far from God. He didn't say, you have to stop worshiping idols. You have to stop eating pulled pork sandwiches. You have to get circumcised, and you have to read the Bible, and then you can be saved. That's not what he said. He said, look, I understand what you're going through. I've been there. God's closer than you think, and he wants to be with you. That's good news. So my guess is if you went to missionary school, they would teach you contextualization. They'd say you need to take the, the gospel and bring it into a context so that people can hear. They might actually use the word indigenization. Anyone, you guys are in school, do you guys get, hear this word indigenization? It means making something more native, transforming it of some, it's the transformation of some service or idea or, or, or gospel to suit the local culture. So you're taking that message and you're making it sound right to the indigenous people there. Evangelicals have been doing this for centuries when it comes to foreign missions. If we go to Rome, what do we do? When in Rome, do as the Romans do. If we were to go to Africa, we're going to share the gospel with the Africans, and we're not going to force them to sing uh, Dave Matthews. <laughs> we're not going to, that would be bad, yeah. We're not going to force them to sing our, our European hymns, are we? Almighty fortress is. No, we're not going to do that. Now, now, I admit that there might have been missionaries in the ancient past who did that kind of thing, but not anymore. We haven't done that in a long time. Now, when we go to Africa, we say, we want you to write your own worship music. We want you to, to worship God in your culture, in your indigenous context. So, are we going to say, but you can't play drums? But you can't dance? You got to put on more clothes because you Africans don't wear enough clothes. Are we going to do that? No, we're not. We're going to say, you worship God in your context. You teach us a thing about God. I was at a conference this weekend, and the president of the EFCA church, he asked three, four people to pray. He says, Bill, I want you to pray in your native tongue, which is English. And then, you know, Sam, I want you to pray. Jim, I want you to pray. And, and you know, Chris, I want you to pray. And so one guy prayed in English. The next guy prayed in German. The next guy prayed in Russian, and the last guy prayed in Spanish, and I understood two of the words he said, and it was great. Jeremy was there. Wasn't it great? A little taste of heaven. This is what it's going to feel like. We don't try to force them to, teach, to say our language. We don't try to force them to sing our songs. We say, we're going to adapt the message to your culture. That's what contextualization means. Contextualization, contextualization means you take the culture and the context and you make it fit. When we enter into a culture, we must make the gospel intelligible and relevant to that culture. Isn't that true? I'm just telling you, I'm excited about this. But can I tell you this? That's not what we've done in America. Am I right? Churches say, when you go to Africa, contextualize and, and, and wear African clothes and listen to African music and, and when in Rome, do as the Romans do. But when you're in America, you stay away from the culture. And we separated from the culture. 
It's called separatist movement. We separated from the culture and we made our own culture called Christian culture, called Christendom. And if you ask me, it kind of... Try not to say the word I want to say. It's kind of, it, it, it kind of sucks. Let me just say that. Our culture kind of sucks. Well, basically, we copy the culture, and we don't do a very good job. Instead of saying Holy Spirit, we say Sprite it Spirit. You know what I mean? You have a T-shirt that looks like Sprite, but it says Spirit. That's cheesy. You know, we, didn't, we have our own culture, and it's not impacting the culture. So we are so enslaved to our own little Christian bubble that we have no idea how to influence that culture at large. Am I right? We're so enslaved by our own Christian context that we're not allowed to enter into the other context and we've lost our mind on how to, how to minister to them, how to share the gospel to them, how to contextualize to them. It's kind of hard for slaves to set other slaves free, is it not? But the church in America has enslaved us to be afraid of the culture. Culture is not evil. Can I just say that? Culture is not evil. It just is. Culture will always be and it will always change. And God will always be too. And he will never change. But culture is not evil. You're allowed to enter into culture. Can I just free you up tonight? This is a message about freedom. You are free to be in culture. You are free to contextualize. But that sounds scary, doesn't it? Why did, they separ- why did we separate? Why did they create this separatistic mindset? Because of fear. Am I right? Not because of freedom. They were afraid that if we make the gospel relevant, we would lose the gospel. I think this is hilarious and sad. It's painfully sad, actually. They thought if we made the gospel relevant, we would lose the gospel. But if you think about it, think about this. And in doing that, the gospels become lost. Am I I right? We can't take the gospel out there and make it relevant to them so they can hear it and understand it. Instead, we got to put it here in our little bubble And now it's lost and they don't get to hear it. And there's no power and the gospel's not advancing and the church is in radical decline. Ed Stetzer, a a very um, well-respected missiologist, said this. Evangelicals have generally forbidden North American churches from doing the very thing we require international churches to do. Many churches often struggle just to change the carpet in the worship center. Anyone been there? Like, like you're going to burn the place down if you put red carpet in there. You know, you can't do that. My, my, my Aunt Ethel, she put that carpet in there. I know it's old, but we can't get rid of it. <laughs> and they aren't dealing with cultural shifts that are going on here in America. And the sad reality is that many are just afraid of change. And therefore, they're extremely defensive against indigenizing or contextualizing the gospel within our own context, which is a postmodern context today. Emily's going to Europe to contextualize in a postmodern context. How can I get these people who've seen so many church buildings closed down, how can I get these people to realize that the gospel is about freedom? That's what she said in her, in her talk. We have to make this attractive to them. We've got to make it relevant to them. Now, just in case you're one of those people who are afraid of what I just said, can I remind you that this is exactly what the Jerusalem Council decided Paul, you go to the Gentiles, do your thing, it's working. Peter, James, we'll go to the Jews. We'll figure out how to make that work. It's not a one-size-fits-all kind of a thing. We've got to contextualize. You are free. Can I just say that you're free? 
Come on, someone, someone put your fist in the air and say, freedom. You are free to be a hippie. You can be. You are free to be a hip-hop rapper. I won't judge you. You are free to be a country western. Okay, no. You're not free to be a country western singer. You are free to be artsy, fartsy. You're free to be in a band. You're free to do that. You're free to enter into culture. You don't have to be afraid of it. Jesus is going to go with you. And Jesus wants you to go into that culture. You have freedom. Amen? Freedom. Now, I've got to say something, though, because there will be people who are afraid, and I, I might get an email or two, so let me just say this. Um, there, there is a difference between a relativist and a relevantist. Do, do you know the difference? Relevant means you adapt it to fit your culture because you want to be relevant to your culture. Don't tell people the whole story of Adam to Eve and Moses and Jacob and Enoch in order to share the gospel with them. That's irrelevant. Just make it relevant to their time and to their need. But a relativist, he doesn't necessarily want to change the, the, he doesn't just change the way the message is packaged, he changes the message entirely. A relativist doesn't believe in truth. All truth is relative, he'll say. So there is no truth. A relevant says all truth is God's truth. God created this earth. Everything on this earth is God. And so we just have to know how to redeem what we have for his glory, how to contextualize what he's given us for his glory. Science isn't bad. Medicine isn't bad. Psychology isn't bad. It just has to be pushed through the grid or the filter of the gospel. I, I studied psychology, by the way. Got a BA in psych. Don't know what in the world anyone would do with it, but you got a BA in psych. And then I went to seminary, and they wanted to give me a little small master's version seminarian version of counseling. And I didn't want to take that class because I thought they were going to say everything you learned and paid for in undergrad is junk. <laughs> Freud, Young, Marx, all that stuff, junk. But that's not what they did. I was so thankful. He said, all of that stuff is interesting. It's all truth. It's all God's truth. Freud was on to something. Now, he got a little carried away, I think, but he was on to something. And if we can take his psychosomatic stuff and squish it through the lens of the gospel, on the other side, there's something there. There are People do have dreams. People do have mommy issues. People are, you know, we're not just going to erase everything Freud did because it's not in the Bible. <laughs> it's all truth is God's truth. Now, a relativist will change the doctrine in order not to offend people, in order to make it relevant. A good example of this is happening today. People don't like to talk about hell, do they, Justin? So let's just get rid of hell. Well, let's get rid of it. Yeah, now everyone's happy. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> That's what a relativist does. A relevantist doesn't change doctrine, but just changes the way the doctrine is packaged. We'll talk about it in a different way. We'll be cautious when we talk about it. We'll use some better quotes. We won't quote the Bible. Maybe we'll quote Einstein. I don't know. We'll do it differently. But either which way, our goal is to reach people, not to offend them. Paul was irrelevant. In 1 Corinthians, he says this, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Think about this. I've become all things to all people. To a redneck, I become a redneck. To a guy who hates Ford, I love Chevy. You know what I mean? I will become all things to all people, and I will do all, what does it say? All things to all people by all means. I'll do anything. I will become a Rams fan if I have to, to reach people. Okay? And I do it all for the what? Sake of the gospel. So again, I just want to set you free. I want to set you free. 
Get out there and, and contextualize. Get out there and be relevant. If you like football, you don't have to hide that. If you've got a tattoo, you don't have to hide it, okay? Use it for God's glory. Come on, some, just at least tell me that you are on the same page as me. Have you been in those contexts where you have to like stuff it down and put on a mask and pretend like you don't listen to Beyonce because you're scared someone's going to get mad at you and call you not a Christian? You're allowed to do that, okay? It's okay. It's for, you're free. If the Son has set you free, you're free indeed. It's for freedom that Christ has set you free. Let me give you an illustration. Um, music. I love music. Music is a great illustration of this. Um, music stays alive if it changes. Am I right? Alex, am I right? The Beatles were so famous because they always changed, didn't they? Their sound was always changing and always doing something new, and they were always selling records. And so if you want music to survive, it has to change. So a couple of years ago, I was a youth pastor, and I took our kids to like Six Flags or, or Wet Wild. I don't know where we were. And, and, and while we were there, um, this song kept playing like 10, 20, 50 times while we're standing in line for Batman, you know? And I was getting irritated with it. I was saying, I don't like the song, and, but I didn't want to say anything because I didn't want to. I didn't want to. I didn't want to sound like my my parents, like oh they're ruining a good song, you know. So I just didn't say anything because I'm a cool youth pastor. But then the kids started singing the lyrics. You know, standing in line at six, and I lost my mind. And I said, I don't know. I don't know who is this girl, but I have to tell you, she is botching this song because the original version of the song sounded more like this. And it was in the early 1980s when I was in high school. It was a group called Soft Cell. It's one of my favorite songs. It was everyone's favorite song. And this is the way the song is supposed to sound. But then when I came home, I was telling my wife the story, and I was like, oh, no, I'm becoming an old man. I'm starting to act like my mom and dad. It's like, they're ruining a good song. And I, and I played the song for my wife, and she said, I've heard that song too, but it, it sounded kind of more like this. She said, my dad was a Motown lover, and we used to play this song at home all the time. And I did some research, and I learned that it was originally written in the early 70s by Gloria Jones. So, so the point I'm trying to make is that the sound of the message must change in order for it to be heard by the culture around us. Am I right? Some high schooler today is not going to listen to this. I mean, there's always a few weird ones who goes back in time and listens to old music. But for the most part, for the most part, high schoolers are not going to listen to Gloria Jones. And they're not going to listen to Soft Cell. Not yet, at least. But they will listen to... Who, what, Rihanna or Rayanna or whatever. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm pretending like I don't know culture. <laughs> they will. They'll listen to her. And so she doesn't actually change the message of the song. The song is still the same. It's tainted love, baby. You know what I mean? And it's the same message, but it sounds different. The message never changes but the sound has to change in order for it to be heard by a particular context. Am I right? So you might be surprised to know that all the way back in the 1500s, the reformers had a word for that. And their word was ecclesiae semper reformanda. Ecclesiae means the church. Semper means always. Reformanda, you could probably guess, reform. The church is always reforming. The church has to change with the culture. The church has to change with the context. 
Jesus never changes. God never changes. The message never changes. But the way we do things change. And by the way, the way we do things now isn't the original way it was done, even though we think it is. I thought soft cell was the original. It's actually not. And so we think, you know, pews and hymns and no coffee allowed in the sanctuary and no blue jeans was the original way. It wasn't. I have a funny feeling you probably wouldn't like the original way. Gracias a Jimos amen. All right, so you like the old way? <laughs> Go back. All right, one more thing. This is why we call ourselves Missio Dei Church. Can I just tell you that? Because I am passionate about this. In the book of Galatians, Paul is teaching us right here, we are free to be in the culture. The culture's not evil. It's just, it just is. And we're here in this culture for this time, for this place, to be in it. Even if the culture was evil, aren't we still supposed to enter into it and teach them the gospel and share the good news of freedom and grace? Yes. So that's why we call ourselves Missio Dei, because Missio Dei means the mission of God. And God's mission is to reach people who are far from him, people who are far from God, in weird, strange cultures. And he is doing all that he can to make the gospel relevant in their culture. And I want our church to enter into culture and to be relevant in that culture. I want our church to go wherever it is. If you need to go down to Delmar Loop, if you need to go down and play Frisbee golf, if you need to go over to suburbia and, and, and like decorate your house with Pinterest magazines or whatever, do that. Be in your culture and reach people for Christ. Don't get in a Christian bubble and study your Bible all day and have no impact. I don't want a church like that. I want a church on the mission of God. Amen? Amen. I don't want a church that's in a bubble, that's in a community group. <laughs> I want a church that's missional community. We're going into that community to show them, look, Jesus is actually pretty darn cool. Way cooler than you've ever imagined. Way cooler than you'll ever be. <laughs> so I want to end with a discussion question. I had a, a lot to get off my chest. I'm done. So we're just going to have one discussion. We'll just end with it. Um, and the question is this. How is this going to revolutionize your life? <laughs> just kidding. I hope it does. But let me, let's, let's make a better question. So how can we enter into and influence the culture around us today for Jesus, your culture? How can you enter into that culture and be relevant for Jesus today? Or another way of saying it is, how does this freedom to enter into culture empower you to do that? Or I, I like my first question better. How is this freedom going to revolutionize your life? I don't know about you, but like, I think this should free you up for a lot of things. You don't have to pretend anymore that you are better than you really aren't. You know? You can be yourself. And then my hope and my prayer for our church, it really is, is that you in this series, my, my, my hope and prayer consistently for this series is that you will be set free from all kinds of chains, all kinds of slavery. Slavery of religion especially, but slavery from the need to please, slavery from, the, from this need to, to, to improve, slavery from this need to make yourself look better than you really are, and, and freedom from that slavery even that says you can't enter into culture. My hope and prayer is that you will let that freedom come alive inside of your life, and people will want to spy it out. People will say, what's up with that freedom? What's up with all that joy? What's up with all that confidence and security that they have that they don't have to even please God because God's already found pleasingness in them, <laughs> in Christ. And then as they spy out your freedom, it'll be contagious and they'll want some of that. Don't you think? They'll want some of that freedom. That's my prayer for us and for this series and for this church. And so as we close, as we, can, as we conclude, 
will take communion. Jesus, when he died, he, he, he told his disciples, I want, I want you guys to do this in remembrance of me. As often as you gather, I want you to come together. I want you to break the bread. I want you to drink of the cup. And I want you to remember what I did for you. And, and here's what I did. I died on the cross for your sins so that you would have freedom. And with that freedom, I'm sending you as free birds into the world. And I want you to go to all the ends of the earth, to all those cultures, and I want you to tell them about my love. And I want you to love them as I have loved you.